favor. You're not supposed to do this, uh, but I'm going to do it. Just make it a little uncomfortable. If you would move forward, there are like four empty rows. If you're physically able to move forward, I will not bite, and we would love for you to be closer as we talk together this morning. So let me pray for us, and let's quietly move forward if you're physically able. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have woken us up, that you desire this morning to speak to us. God, we come here as a group of followers, seekers, skeptics, doubters, rich and poor, male and female, all different kinds of backgrounds. But God, we come because we want to hear from you. So God, I pray for us as we listen to your word, would you speak? Would you draw our hearts, convict us, teach us? shape us, change us. God, we pray that we would not leave the same as we came in today. And we know that only you can do this. And so we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Well, if you're uh, new or we've never met, my name is, uh, I serve as uh, the congregational pastor at Midtown. So we are a family of neighborhood churches scattered around the city of Indianapolis. Uh, so obviously we have Soma downtown here, which is probably just Soma to you. Uh, there are some of us up in Michigan, otherwise known as Broderpool, uh, Midtown, right around 62nd and Keystone. And then there are some others of us that, are, that gather on a regular basis in the Pike Township area, right around um, 86th and Michigan. And so we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we, uh, yeah, Pastor Kent, just, just so you know, is sick. So um, Sharon is here, but Kent is not, and uh, I don't know if he has a stomach bug, if he, has, if he ate something weird last night, but uh, he is not here. So thankfully, we'd already planned for me to be here, so I'm thankful to be uh, able to step in for him and, and to share this morning. Um, let me just start with a quick question, um, and this may not relate to anybody in the room, but uh, when was the last time you were lost? Like, most of us don't, probably don't even have a category for what it means to be lost. If you own a smartphone with GPS, you probably have never been lost in your life. Um, but when I, I'm 38 years old. I'll be 39 uh, here in just a few months. And when I, was, when I was growing up in the 90s, when you got a car, uh, at least in Kentucky, this is what guys did, we drove as far as we could to get lost on purpose. And it was kind of like a rite of passage to like get lost so that you could find your way uh, and say that you've been lost and you've kind of, you know, found, found your way on your own, or you, you found a way to, like, brave the rural areas of Kentucky, and, like, you came out alive. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had this weird experience of being lost in Columbus, Ohio. So I, I know maybe you're like, how do you get lost in a city? But um, let me just explain. So my, I have four kids. Uh, my oldest is thir- almost 13. Uh, then I have an 11 and a half year old, and if you're a parent, you know what that means. Uh, I have an a, a almost nine, almost 10 year old, and then uh, a seven and a half year old. And uh, right before my kids go into the sixth grade, my wife and I uh, individually will take them on trips. So that, uh, I'll take the boys, Emily will take the girls. And if you ask why, it's like, do you not remember middle school? Okay, it's like a Shark Tank. Okay, so that that horrible place that you survived that none of us would ever want to go back to, junior high, whatever, uh, middle school. Uh, we take them just to give them like a little bit of the contours of like what to expect becoming a, uh, when they become a teenager, what they're going to face, kind of like things that I wish my dad, my dad, I love my dad, but um, like our talk about like being a teenager was like five seconds, just like, well, there's these birds and there's these bees and all right, you'll figure it out, any questions? And it was just like this uncomfortable kind of talk that we had that I wish we didn't. And so uh, I wanted a little bit something more for my, my sons and so we took him to talk about all kinds of things, about adolescence, about their bodies. Um, you know, it was, it was great. We've been having these conversations since they were kids, but this was kind of like the next level, like the talk, uh, kind of bringing them into adulthood. And so we went to Columbus. My, my oldest son wanted to go to Harry Potter World, so we took him to Harry Potter World a year ago. This, uh, my, my second oldest son's a big sports guy, so he wanted to go to Columbus to see the first and second round of the NCAA tournament. So we went over there, and um, uh, in between sessions, we got in, didn't have time to go to our hotel. I'd booked a hotel a couple weeks ago. I had no idea what hotel it was. I don't know if you do this. It's just like it's on my phone and I'll find it later kind of thing. Um, and so I had an email that said where my hotel was and had directions and all that. But um, in between sessions, we were at dinner at this place called the Short North Tavern, 
which is as seedy as it sounds. Uh, it was basically a bunch of drunk, middle-aged uh, men singing bar tunes and throwing darts, and then me and my 11-year-old son. And uh, the short, short North, if you're familiar with Columbus, it's basically like if you took Broad Ripple and Fountain Square and kind of put them together, that's, that's like the short North. And so we're there. My son says, hey, Dad, we've only got 7% battery life or something. It's in the single digits. It's red, and we've still got to go to midnight before we can go back to the hotel. And for a moment, I, I begin to panic because the, pho- the phone battery was draining. And I'm like, I have no idea how to get to our hotel. It's supposedly at, and if you're from Ohio, I guess you'll get this, the Ohio State University. Um, I don't know why they have a the in front of it, but it's at the Ohio State University. It's a hotel right off campus, but I have no idea where the Ohio State University is or even the name of our hotel. And so I, I temporarily panic because I'm like, I, what, if, what if we get lost? What if I'm downtown in Columbus and we get lost and I don't know how to get to our hotel? It's as if I didn't have a life before 2007, before the first iPhone came out with like GPS built into it. Um, and, and so I begin to think, okay, what would I do? If I, what did I used to do when I get lost? Okay, find a truck stop, get one of those ridiculous plastic maps, you know, like what, like, what would I do? Find a local, you know, try to get directions, hail a cab. Like I, I I wasn't really lost, but in that moment, I, 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 I freaked out, and, and I, needed, I needed a map. I needed a way to get reoriented and relocated to the city of Columbus so that I could take my son and find our way to the hotel. That is, I think, how some of us feel about life in general right now. We, there, there's a sense of disorientation that exists in our, in our lives and kind of this moment we live in, right, where we feel displaced. We feel under pressure. We feel like we're, we've been dropped into the middle of the city, and we don't know where we are. We don't know the coordinates. We don't know how to get to the place that we want to be. There's, there's a lot of confusion. There's, there's anger, right? It seems like our, our whole world has lost its mind, and people are, are arguing and flamethrowing, and there's just conflict, and, you know, we, we, we try to find our way on our own, right? Like some of you have moved from city to city thinking, if I just change cities, if I just change jobs— if I just change relationships, if I just change roommates, right, then I'll feel at home. But, but there's this kind of unsettled feeling that we carry around where it just does, it doesn't matter what the context is. There's just a feeling of disorientation, and we need to relocate ourselves into something bigger that feels, I, I don't know what the word is, safe, maybe is the best way to put it, a place where you can trust, a place where you can be loved and known and pointed home. How do we find that? Like, how do, how do, I don't know how you find that, right? It's not, you can't find it at the gym. Can't find it in some kind of a diet. Can't find it in a spouse. Can't find it in singleness. Can't find it in children. Can't find it in the government. Where do you go to relocate yourself in the midst of a confusing, chaotic world? One of the things that we see in the Bible over and over again in the scripture is that uh, God's people had a certain rhythm for how they would relocate themselves. Uh, in a world very similar to ours that was chaotic and confusing. Let me just read this passage to you from Acts chapter 4. And this is just one example of, I think, at least 20 in the book of Acts like this. But I want to read this to you. Acts chapter 4 is our scripture this morning, our teaching from the Bible. And I want to read this. I want to talk about, um, so we've been in this series on on spiritual formation, what it looks like to practice the way of Jesus together um, in a way that brings life to the world. And, and we've talked about prayer, kind of personal prayer, um, private prayer. We talked last week about intercessory prayer, about praying for each other. And we actually had a time to come forward and to, to pray for healing for one another. This week, we're going to talk about communal prayer, what I'll, what I'll call contending prayer, where we really struggle and labor together, together for uh, God's renewing presence to come and to bring a sense of location, a sense of reorientation, a sense of recalibration of not only our individual lives, but our, our life together, our group lives, our corporate identity. Let me just read this from Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one around you. Feel free to pick that up and use that. Actually, keep it if you don't own a Bible. It's our gift to you. If you do, don't steal, okay? <laughs> when they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. So you have here what we'll call contending prayer, an example of many in the book of Acts that we'll call contending prayer. Let me define contending prayer for you, and I'll borrow part of this from a guy named Tertullian, who was an African pastor in the early church, and then I want to add my own spin on it um, in terms of this passage. But contending prayer, a little bit different than private prayer, different than intercessory prayer. Here's how I'll define it. A, A holy conspiracy, right? You like a good conspiracy? Tertullian says that's prayer. It is a conspiracy, a holy conspiracy, by which we together may set upon God by a force that is welcome to him in order to contend or to strive or to struggle for renewal, revival, awakening. A holy conspiracy by which we may set upon God by a force that is welcome, that he created, right? A mechanism that God created for us to come before heaven and beat on the gates and to beg God to contend for awakening. Again, this is a pattern that you see in the book of Acts. Over and over and over again, the people were committed to not just individual prayer. Matter of fact, you're hard-pressed to find an individual prayer in the book of Acts. What you see a lot of is corporate prayer, communal prayer, this contending prayer, people gathering together for the purpose of praying together. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says the people would go in and out of their homes and they were in and out of the temple, both Sundays formally and informally in each other's homes. They devoted themselves to the prayers, the prayers. Most people think that was some combination of set prayers and just a life of prayer together. But the point is, it's intentional, it is deliberate, it is something that was, uh, I guess you could say, the organizing principle of their life together. So there's this pattern we see in the book of Acts when renewal comes, when God awakens the church, that it starts with usually a crisis. Peter and John are arrested for preaching the name of Jesus, right? And I don't want you to think about, like, I grew up in the South. When I think of people uh, preaching Jesus on a street corner, I think of, like, uh, you know, old men, like, have it, like picket signs uh, with, like, velour or, uh, you know, gentlemen's leisure suits, purple, usually, like saying certain groups of people were going to hell, okay? If, if that's been your experience, that's, that's not what's going on here, okay? These are people standing up in the marketplace, in the university, in their neighborhoods, basically saying Jesus is the reason for existence. He is the goal of human life. He is the central goal of what it means to flourish, right? Jesus' life, the life that he lived that we couldn't live, the death that he died that we should have died, his resurrection from the dead over the powers that oppress us as human beings. He says, this is why you were created for a relationship with Jesus. He is the sovereign Lord of history, right? It's those kind of public claims. When they prayed, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your government come, your policies come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those dangerous prayers, those dangerous messages got them thrown into prison. And they were released, and they were warned, they were threatened. Don't do this again, or it's going to get worse for you. And so in the midst of that persecution, we see this church gather. And that's the next step in renewal, is crisis gives way to a holy discontent. Now, we all know what it's like to be discontent. That's probably a characteristic of our generation in some ways, just to be dissatisfied, to be angsty. But this is a holy discontent. This is a sacred discontent. This pushes us 
to a discontentment, not just with culture, not just with what's happening on Twitter, but a discontent first and foremost with our own faith, a discontent with our own status quo way of living. We get discontent with um, not just critiquing what's wrong out there in the world, but looking into our own hearts and saying, what I want to happen out there in the world, I'm not even living out in my own household. I'm not living out with my spouse. I'm not living out with my children. I'm not living that out of my own neighborhood. There's a discontent with the church, right? The church is not what it could be, not what it should be. And that's where some people, they jump off the train. I'm almost 40. I can't tell you how many of my friends are leaving the church because they're mad, they're wounded, they're jaded, they're bitter. Just at the moment when their discontentment could lead to a holy discontent and the reform of the church, they bail. And it's easy, right? It's easy to tear down. But what are we building? It's easy to set fire. But what are we building that we're going to hand off to our kids? Are we just going to be critics? Right? So this holy discontent leads them to contending for it. They are desperate. They recognize their own contribution. They cry out for God's help. And then they begin to say, God, do something. Right? Do something. Do what we cannot do. And in the 28 chapters of Acts, this kind of desperate contending prayer, we see at least 20 times, 20 times in the book of Acts, we see, I got a list up here, and I'll show you some of the different things that the church prays about. If you have really good eyes, hopefully you can see that, right? This will be a little uh, test here for in your eyes. But we see them praying, everyone praying, men and women praying, rich and poor praying, different ethnic groups coming together to pray. Everyone prayed everywhere they were, at the river, in the temple, in their homes. They prayed about everything. They prayed about their food. They prayed with thanksgiving. They prayed when they sent people out of their church into their workplaces. They prayed when they commissioned new leaders for the church. They prayed uh, when they would gather together and share the gospel with people. They prayed when they greeted one another. There was just this desperateness because they were in crisis. They were, they were feeling the heat of opposition. And it led them to pray. It was the organizing principle of their life together. When they came together, they didn't talk about simply, although these are not bad things, they didn't come to talk about flipping houses and gentrification and who got the best deal on what real estate transaction. They didn't come together to talk about the newest brunch spot. And if you've been to this new coffee shop, it's amazing. They serve Tinker, not those other horrible coffees or circadian or whatever. They weren't coming together just to talk about March Madness or their latest camping excursion and you wouldn't believe what happened to this person and they fell asleep and they, sn- I mean, like nothing wrong with like these little trite superficial things, but they wanted something deeper. They wanted something deeper than just playing church together. They wanted the power of God. They wanted the presence of God. They didn't have time, right? They didn't have the luxury of talking about banal superficialities. They needed God desperately to show up. This was normal for Christians in the early church. It is irregular, in my experience, for Christians in our church. And I'm talking about myself. Megan Hill, uh, it's interesting reading books on prayer. Most books on prayer are about individual praying, about private prayer. You're hard-pressed to actually find a book that talks about corporate prayer, about praying together, about contending together. Um, one of the few books, there's two great books, one by a man named John Amuchekwa, who's a pastor in Atlanta. He has a great book on it. And then there's a lady named Megan Hill, um, who also wrote a book called Praying Together. And here's what Megan Hill says about uh, corporate prayer. A Christian never prays alone. Thinking about prayer, we might first call to mind a picture of a lone man on his knees behind closed doors. We might think of him as solitary and his activity as private. But prayer is never solitary. It is communication from one to another. It is communication. It's an activity of relationship. God and us, right? We know that kind of individual prayer. Think about this. God and God. Did you know that God prays to himself? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus praying to his Father through the Spirit. And then all of us and God, all of us communicating together with God. 
Now, what's so powerful about that kind of prayer? What's different about that kind of prayer that would lead the church to gather together under fear of persecution? What is it that gathers our brothers and sisters around the world right now under fear of persecution in North Korea, in uh, China, in Japan, in Africa, in Guatemala? All over the world, our brothers and sisters right now are gathering, some of them in graveyards, some of them in catacombs, many of them uh, you know, ostracized from their social networks, their families. What is it about this kind of prayer that's powerful? Let me suggest to you a couple of things. And then we're going to actually spend some time praying together. So just prepare yourselves emotionally. Okay, don't leave. Uh, we're not going to hopefully do anything too weird. But I do want us to actually lean into this and to spend some time praying together as, as a church family. So a couple of things. First thing that we see here in this passage is that uh, this contending prayer uh, is about reorientation. Reorientation. Notice what happens here. They, they gathered together, again, in the midst of opposition. And notice the first words out of their mouth. Now, I don't know if this is like Korean prayer, where everybody prays out loud really loudly together. I don't know if you've ever been to a Korean prayer service. They have something called early prayer every day for an hour. I have a friend who's a Korean church planner, and he said the very first time some older Koreans came to visit his church, he's like, you guys don't pray at 6 a.m. every morning? What's wrong with you? They go to the mountain once a month, and they just lift up their voices. The mountains were places where they would go when they were persecuted. They would flee to the hills, and they would pray to God and cry out to him and ask for his mercy and ask for revival. Now, I don't know if it was like that or if it was just a leader praying on behalf of the people. Either way, they lift their voices up and notice what they say. First thing, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They want to reorient themselves first and foremost to the power of God, to the character of God, to the nature of God. They want to remember God's rule, God's reign. This word sovereign Lord is a title for somebody who had absolute power over someone else. They're saying, God, there's not a speck of dust, a speck of sand in the universe that is not under your control. We want to remember that as we step towards this, as we step towards this opposition, as we step towards this hostility, we want to stop and remember. Now, why are they doing that? Why do we need to do that? Because we forget. Things in our lives get resized, right? When we're under pressure, when we're stressed out, when life's not going our way, what do we do? Everything else gets big, and God gets really small, right? Your boss gets big. Your spouse gets big. Your neighbors get big. Your enemies get big. Your coworkers get big, and those might all be the same thing. Your father gets big, or the memory of your father gets big. God gets small. So the first thing that they want to do is resize. They want to recalibrate to the bigness of God to the greatness of God, to the power of God. Say, there is no one stronger than you in the universe. God, there's not a thing that happens in my life that is not under your superintending, powerful right hand. God, would you burn that into our hearts? You see, they're kind of talking that into their hearts. They know it's true up here, but you know sometimes you need to know it's true down here. And man, that makes all the difference. 18 inches makes all the difference in the world in terms of how you live your life Monday to Saturday. Do I really believe that God's strong? And not only is he strong, do I believe that he loves me? In the midst of his strength, he's not seeking to destroy me, but rather to lift me up, to remember me, to prosper me. We all need to be reoriented to who God is. That is more important than anything else you do in prayer. Relocating yourself in relationship to God. God, I'm not alone, because we feel alone, right? We have this abandonment complex, right? Like, doesn't matter what God did yesterday, it's today. Where are you, God? We walk around feeling abandoned, feeling ashamed, feeling angry. Much of that, if we're honest, not just at things happening around us, but at ourselves and at God. At the core of so much of our anger and bitterness and resentment is we don't trust God. We don't feel like he has our best interest in mind. And so prayer reorients us to his power to his story, right? He looks back in history, they quote Psalm 2, which was a liturgy of coronation for ancient kings. And, and basically, the, the point of this is to say, people have always raged against God's sovereignty. 
in every generation. Like, we think it's new that the world's freaking out right now. Like, the psalmist says it's always been that way. There's never been a time when God's people were not opposed because it is the inclination of the human heart to rebel against any authority, particularly God's authority. That is our story as human beings. In the words of that great poet philosopher Tom Petty, it's good to be king sometimes. And that's how we walk around feeling. We want to be king. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. And so we rebel against authority. So he's saying, don't be surprised when people rebel against God's authority. Don't be surprised when culture goes upside down. It's always been this way. They align themselves against Jesus. How do you think you're going to be any different? Matter of fact, if you're not facing opposition, you should wonder if you're really aligning yourself with Jesus. If everything's kosher, if everything's, to use a 90s word, copacetic between you and culture, between you and your friends, you and your coworkers, something might be off. Notice they're saying, like, God, look back on all that's happened. All these people were aligned against Jesus. It's always been the case. So they reorient themselves to the story. We are oppressed. We are facing opposition, but it's nothing new. So we don't have to freak out. We don't have to lose our minds. And man, how different a perspective this is in the way that the church often operates right now. We see oppression as the end of Christianity. We see oppression as about holding on to our rights and trying to fight culture wars. Now, this may not be as much our generation, but there is a part of us that freaks out when we get power taken away from us or we feel that our power is threatened. And what we see here in this passage with the early church is they saw moments of great oppression as the moments of greatest opportunity. It's the time when God was doing something new and fresh in the church, and he wanted to invite them to join him in his work of renewal. And so there's nothing wrong with naming the moment we live in and saying, you know what, it is crazy. But, but that's only helpful to a, to a degree. What's transformational is to set this moment in the context of the thousands of moments that God has been working throughout history to bring about his redemptive purposes in the midst of the crazy. That is where transformation begins to happen when we see that it's always been crazy. And we make God the center of that story instead of ourselves. And we say, God, would you do it again? That's the kind of contending prayer that happens when we gather together. See, one of the things we've lost in... um, this transition, I'll go back to my maps illustration for a second. Uh, this transition from paper maps, which I grew up with, uh, to GPS, is that um, there's something interesting about GPS. Every time you open up your phone and you, put, you click on Google Maps, what's the first thing you see blinking in front of you? Your location, right? It says your location and blinks bright blue. If you have a smartphone, you know this. And what happens is the world orients itself to you. You're in the center, right? Your location is in the center. Everything else gets oriented around you. What happened with unfolding a paper map, which could be as big as your car, if you remember these, like, I bet none of you have ever stopped at a truck stop when you're going to another state and grabbed a paper map. But if you do it and you unfold, I mean, they're like this big and they unfold to the size of the car. And you can never get them put back in the right, the creases are all messed up. It's just, it's a nightmare. But in that, you always had to orient yourself to the larger world. And you had to say, okay, where am I? What, what landmarks have I passed? Right? There was a sense of the bigness of the topography of America or North America that gave you an appropriate sense of smallness. And you had to orient yourself to the map. The map didn't orient itself to you. That's what's happening in contending prayer. We are reorient our, reorienting ourselves to the bigness of God, the greatness of God. And we're saying, God, you actually are the blinking blue dot not us. Second thing, quickly. Resonance. Not only do we reorient ourselves, but we experience a resonance, which is to say we get on the same frequency. We, we don't live oftentimes on the same frequency in the church. We're all on different channels, to use an analogy. My kids like to play with walkie-talkies. They think it's fun to walk around the house, and the boys will get on their own channel, and then they'll, like, tease and taunt the girls, and they won't tell them what channel they're on. So I'll hear screaming coming from the basement. He won't tell me what channel he's on. 
And so there's this rush to get on the right channel and to get everybody synchronized. So I have to step in. There's actually like a search button that will help them, help them all sync up. My seven-year-old doesn't know that. So it's just, it is like a national tragedy and injustice when that happens in our household. And so my youngest daughter, very attuned to injustice. And so she's screaming, but we got to get everybody on the same channel so we can communicate. What we see here is there's this, there's this solidarity that happens in corporate prayer, contending prayer. Notice verse 29. Now, God, look upon these threats. Nobody's head's in the sand here. They see the threats. Nobody's clicking their heels together saying there's no place like home, no place like home, no place like home. Take us to the golden city. There is a reality check here of there are threats, and we all see them together, and we all experience them together. And in the midst of those threats, they're still crying out for boldness. That's what contending prayer does. That's what community prayer does. It tunes us to the frequency of each other's hearts. It tunes us to the frequency of God's heart, tunes us to the frequency of one another's heart, gets us together on the same wavelength, on the same signal, the same channel, and that creates deep unity, compassion as we pray together. Sometimes it's a unity around shared experiences. Like I'll never forget... uh, we got pregnant three months in to our marriage. I was 24 at the time. And we lost our first child about 10 weeks. So there's this deep grief and sadness. Longing, desire to have kids. People would be nice and they'd write us cards, usually saying offensive things, you know, or just like, you know, one in four pregnancies. And it's like, that's not helpful. You know, stop. Doing what Christians do, usually making it worse. One couple in particular, though, came over to our house. And they just sat down on our couch, and they wept with us, and they prayed. Just, can we pray with you? And, and they prayed with only words who somebody who'd been through a miscarriage knew how to say to speak to those parts of our hearts that were most vulnerable. And man, it was such an encouragement to get on the same wavelength with somebody else who'd experienced the kind of loss and pain. Notice they don't pray for protection. They don't pray for God to fall on fire and to light his enemies. Like the disciples did after they were martyred for Christ. They don't pray that, you know, God, we just want to withdraw and God, you know, property out west. We don't want to just withdraw. Um, tell me to stop screaming. We don't want to just withdraw and buy some property out in Arizona, get a shotgun, and, and just, you know, wait for, like, the second coming to come. No, they say, God, what we need more than anything else is boldness to speak your name. Isn't that amazing? Like, I want to pray like that. I want to pray like that. God, give me boldness to speak your name. Because you know what? Here's the truth. I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to talk about Jesus, and I'm afraid. I, I'm very conscious, self-conscious about showing up at cocktail parties and dinners and bars and in places where I know people think it's weird for pastors to be. And, 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 I'm, and I'm hesitant to speak the name of Jesus. I'm hesitant to talk about Jesus, to call people to Jesus. My coworkers, my friends, my family, my enemies, people who oppose me. But that's what we need more than anything else. Not for God to change our circumstances only, although he will do that one day. What we need is boldness to say, you know what, God's got this, and I'm just going to keep on speaking the name of Jesus regardless of what happens to me. 
That's what we need more than fresh branding and communication techniques and platforms. That's what we need more than better coffee. That's what we need more than better production here, although I'm for all of those things. What we need more than all of that is boldness and courage together. And that's what happens when we come together to contend. We link arms and say, hey, I'm afraid. I'm scared. I need your help. I don't know what to say. I blew it this week with a coworker. I lost my temper on my mom. And I need more grace. And I need you to pray for me. And we pray. And then finally, we see renewal break out. As they gather together, renewal breaks out. We see down in verse 31, they prayed and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And anytime things shake in the Bible, that's a a signifier for God's presence and his power entering in. It's like stepping out into a lake before the ice is hardened and you step out there and it begins to crack. That's what happens when God shows up in our world. His glory is so heavy. His, His presence is so thick and good and beautiful. We can't handle it. And we begin to shake. So he shakes the church with his presence. In other words, renewal happens. The power and presence of God visits his people. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Not for the first time, but again, they're filled with the Spirit, which means essentially they've had a fresh experience of God's love. It moves from here to here, and they know that they're loved. They know that God knows them and that he is with them and he is for him, which really is what we need more than anything else, right? We need to know that God loves us. That kind of centeredness, that kind of anchoring, that kind of grounding is what allows us to live scandalously generous lives. Scandalously bold, dangerous lives. And so we gather together in contending prayer to pray for renewal. That's what we're about as a church. We're not just here to play religious games. I hope that you didn't come to church this morning just because, I I don't know why you came. Just because the music was going to be a certain way, because you liked certain teaching, because you like gathering in a warehouse in New York. I don't, I don't know why you came. It's, it's 100 steps from your house, you know, whatever. But, but I hope that we're coming for more than that. I hope that we're coming for renewal. We're coming together to say, God, we've seen what you've done in the past. Would you do it again? Do it again in our time. Because there's nothing to indicate in the book of Acts that this was supposed to stop in Acts. Matter of fact, it continues to break out in cycles over and over and over again. It happened in the West in the 1720s. It happened in London in the 1850s. It happened in Korea in the early 20th century. It has happened over and over and over again. As people gather together to contend for God's renewing presence, God is faithful to answer those prayers and to bring a fresh wave of his spirit upon his people. And that is what our city needs more than anything else. Not another church, not another religious gathering. We need a people transformed by the Holy Spirit. We need to, to remember that our greatest gift to the city is our transformative, transforming presence. And so we gather together to pray for that. And so we're actually going to do that right now. Um, as we close up, we're going to gather together and we're just going to pray. Now, looking at the age of this church, I bet many of you have never been to a prayer meeting before. And if you did, it was a horrible experience. I was talking to somebody after the first, there was like 12 hours on New Year's Eve with no toys and no snacks when I was five years old. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about here. Talking about us just desperately seeking God, crying out to him together for his renewing presence and power. So I'm going to lead us through the lines of this prayer, and I'm just going to ask us to pray together. And again, if you feel comfortable praying out loud, I would love for you to pray out loud. Like last week you did this at Midtown, and one older gentleman just like, Heavenly Father, and he just like belted. I'm like, all right, let's go. You know, let's do this. Like, let's, let's roll. But it might just be a whisper. It might be vocalizing your prayer. It could be silent. I know some of you here are not followers of Jesus, and it's okay if you don't pray. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to ask God what it might look like for him to be your heavenly father. And, and you just take what you've got, those doubts and those fears, and you just pray what you've got. All right, I just want to encourage you, don't pray what you ought. Pray what you've got. Pray whatever's on your heart in line with, these, with the scripture. The only thing that's not allowed is if it's not a prayer to our Father in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that's out of bounds. You pray to another God, we're going to stop, okay? But we're going to pray to our God, our Father, through the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to lead us through this. And so we'll do this in about, let's see what our time is, about seven or eight minutes, okay? And so, again, if you want to 
um, do that out loud, that's fine. If you want to do that silently, that's fine. If you want to gather with your spouse, if you want to grab your MC, your discipleship group, you want to turn some other people in your row and just start praying together, again, it can just be as simple as, God, I thank you for this. God, I want this. God, I'm afraid of this. God, help me here. Okay, and just short little prayers. Okay, so we're going to start with this line, Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth all the world. Let's just take some time to reorient ourselves to a powerful Father who loves us, to just say, God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your beauty. Thank you for your care. Thank you that you've not forgotten about me. Okay, so let's do that together. Let's just take a few minutes, and let's lift up praise to our Father. Continue to pray. Don't stop praying. And hear these words to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Let's lift up our voices together and ask God for unity, for boldness, for maturity, that God would knit our hearts together, that we would have one voice in making our request known to Him, that we want God to make us a healthy, whole, redeemed people who display unity, and who are bold in sharing the name of Jesus wherever he takes us this week.
continue praying. Hear these words. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray for God to release his Holy Spirit. Let's pray for God to bring renewal not only to us individually, but to our community and to our world as God would bring his healing, his justice, his salvation, his generosity into our lives first, and that that would spill out into our community. Take about 30 more seconds. stand together. We'll close our prayer time at the Lord's Prayer. If you're not familiar with it, it's in Matthew chapter 6. Just to get us all on the same page, because there's like 20 versions, we'll go debts, but if you say something else, then by all means, say what you want to say. Let's say that together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. This is the power of contending prayer. God's kingdom come to the Near East side, to our lives, to our world as it is in heaven. We're asking God to do what we cannot do in our own strength to fix what we can't fix, to heal what we can't heal, to bring about the renewal that we cannot manufacture in our own strength with human wisdom or human power. That's what we celebrate every week as we come to take communion, that we desperately need Jesus to heal us. We come in here with pain. We come in here with wounds. We come in here frustrated. Some of us come in joyful every once in a while, and we want to thank God for that too. God gives both joy and sadness as reminders of our need for him. And so we come and we take this bread, we tear it off, we dip it into the cup, and we remember that Jesus is for us. 
But he's not left us as orphans. We are his children. As we gather together and we link arms, we remember he has given us everything we need to do what he's called us to do. He's equipped us for every good work. And it starts with the work of faith in our own hearts. Grabbing onto communion as if it were a life raft and saying, without this, I can do nothing. Without this, I am utterly hopeless. That's what it means to follow Jesus, not be a good buttoned up religious person, but to say, without God's help, I am nothing. And I desperately need him. And so I want to invite you to come in that spirit with other fellow sinners and fellow sufferers to receive God's mercy and his reminder of his goodness again. The way we celebrate that, we have stations at the front. We have gluten-free to my right, your left. Come and take a piece, dip it into the cup, and be reminded that God is your strength. He is your refuge. He has not left you. And he wants us to seek him in prayer, to seek his renewing presence. And so that's what we're doing here in just a few minutes. If you're not a follower of Jesus, please remain in your seat as others come. Do not feel embarrassed. We're so glad that you're here. But this is a family meal to be shared by those whose only hope is found in Jesus. Okay? So let's take a moment. Let's... Just pray what we've got to God. Let's confess our sins. Let's ask for a fresh experience and encounter with his grace. Let's come and receive communion. We'll sing a few more songs, and then we'll send you out.